Charleston, South Carolina, has been in the news these past few weeks for a darkness that we'd prefer to think was just in the past. The murder of nine African-American parishioners of a historic black church there drew to mind a South plagued by church burnings and bombings, a South ruled by Jim Crow. It felt to many of us like a sign of just how far we still have to go. But Charleston was also home to a historical bright spot, a moment in race relations that could be a kind of guiding light, and it's one food plays largely in. On an April night in 1865, an unusual dinner party gathered in Charleston. The Civil War had just ended, and here, at this dinner party, black and white people sat together. It is an ancient custom that once people sit at a table and break bread, share salt, that they shall do no harm to one another. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, the story of two dinner parties, 150 years apart. As we think about the aftermath of the attacks in Charleston, this story feels even more resonant to me. Producer Philip Greitzer takes us to Charleston for a meal that is both very of the moment in 2015 and harkens back to the end of the Civil War. It's a dinner that takes on race relations in the South head-on. In navy-striped pants, white tunic and toque, African-American chef Kevin Mitchell takes his place before a room full of well-dressed guests seated at two long banquet tables. These have not been hospitable times. Strife and sorrow have far too long held the upper hand. As you know, war is not my work. My study is to make people enjoy the time that they spend together. The remarks sound contemporary, but Mitchell is channeling another black chef, Nat Fuller, speaking the words that he might have said at another banquet held 150 years ago. Tonight, there's a particular taste, a particular pleasure, and that's the taste of liberty. Now is time for you to talk with your neighbor, make a new friend, and hear someone tell his or her story. That might not seem so revolutionary until you consider back in 1865, shortly after the Union Army occupied Charleston, that black chef, Nat Fuller, was speaking to an integrated table of diners, friend and foe, white and black, sitting together. How did a black chef in 1865 come to preside over such a dinner? And how did it come to be recreated today? All that starts with David Shields. He's a professor of English at the University of South Carolina. Shields has interests that are broad and deep. He's written about early American literature, pioneering colonial winemakers, and silent movie photography. There's even a collection of Russian piano music at the USC library that bears his name but he's perhaps best known for his activist scholarship on Southern cuisine and agriculture. I'm also the chair of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, which is a foundation that's been devoted to bringing back the land-raised grains and heirloom vegetables, the most important ingredients of Southern cuisine and particularly that of the low country. He's helped reinvigorate Carolina Gold Rice and the Bradford Watermelon. About two years ago, he was writing a history of the rise of low country cooking. Usually when histories are written of Southern cooking, there's a great deal of emphasis placed on home cooking. One of the missing stories about the development of Southern cooking is what the professional cooks are doing. 
And lo and behold, the most significant figure happens to be this man who was a slave. Shields had come across a report by a Mrs. Frances J. Porche, a grand dame of Charleston society. She wrote about a dinner held at the end of the Civil War. Nat Fuller, she said, a Negro caterer provided munificently for a miscegenate dinner at which blacks and whites sat on an equality and gave toasts and sang songs for Lincoln and freedom. Shields delved deeper. Nat Fuller was born about 1812 and owned by William Gatewood. A freed woman of color, Eliza Lee, taught him how to cook, and about 1850, he negotiated an unusual deal with his master. Fuller said, you let me go and run my own business. I will provide you a percentage of what I earn. This is a, called a self-hire. Matt Fuller first took over the game market in the city. Then he became the greatest caterer in the city. Then he went to Gatewood and said, I want to open a restaurant. Gatewood, his former owner, said yes and financed him. Fuller opened his restaurant in a magnificent building in Charleston, not long before the start of the Civil War. It was called the Bachelor's Retreat, and it was here that uh, even despite the blockades which kept the finest of the imported goods from coming in, Nat Fuller was able to create an incredibly rich and cosmopolitan cuisine. In the spring of 1865, right after the Union occupation ended, Nat Fuller hosted a dinner at his restaurant. The dinner, he hoped, would contribute to the process of healing in a war-torn city. He called it the Reconciliation Dinner. Fuller's vision was a bold one, particularly in Charleston. Charleston is the place that drove secession. That in Charleston, at the end of the war, there was someone who was looking forward to a future of harmony and civility, uh, reconciliation. There's a certain appositeness to that. It, that's just right. The healing has to start where the hurt was greatest. And Nat Fuller was the sort of visionary man who understood that there had to be a future where people could talk to one another. But that didn't mean hosting the dinner was a simple matter. In post-war Charleston, it would have been difficult to find the kinds of provisions Fuller needed for a banquet. And at a time when the privation caused the 15,000 residents of Charleston to be getting a daily rice ration, Nat Fuller used his many connections with the food provisioners, including some of the people in the uh, Union Army, to gather the best ingredients that could be had. And they sat down to a magnificent feast and learned how to um, converse and treat each other with respect and learn the new rules of civility in the uh, post-war world. Fuller invited the right mix of guests, his white restaurant clients, members of the provisional government, and his friends among the city's African-American elite. Except for Mrs. Porsche's report, little is known about the actual dinner. The guest list and the menu haven't survived. But that didn't dissuade David Shields. His work attracts a nucleus of food historians, writers, and chefs. He gathered them together and made a bold proposal. If Fuller's dinner 150 years ago could bring people of different backgrounds together. Could the same thing happen today? I would like people to experience the reality of this man's artistry and recall his vision. 
Uh, when you taste someone's food, when you think about what they stood for, when you think about the challenges that people met, that's, that's learning something. This modern reconciliation dinner would have to be historically correct. Everything from cocktails to hors d'oeuvres, dinner to dessert, would come from Fuller's culinary repertoire, prepared and served the way Fuller would have done it. Without an original menu, they'd have to reconstruct one. The planners also needed an accomplished black chef who could channel Nat Fuller. Who would play Nat Fuller himself? My name is Chef Kevin Mitchell, and I am posing as our culinary forefather, the great genius Nat Fuller. Mitchell teaches at Charleston's Culinary Institute. Cooking is his lifelong passion, first inspired by his grandmother. He grew up in a single-parent home, and since his mother worked, his grandmother took care of him and his three brothers. His brothers would go out to play, but Kevin had to stay home. And I used to say, Grandma, I want to go outside and play too. And she looked at me and said, Kevin, one day your grandmother or your mother will not be here to prepare your meals, to wash your clothes and things like that. And I want you to be the one to know how to do that. Perhaps because of his early years with his grandmother, Mitchell wanted to do more than cook. He wanted to inspire and teach. He became a culinary instructor. In that work, he's seen the value of skills like Nat Fuller's, the human rights visionary. Without really knowing him personally, of course, the spirit or who he was as a man, I can only guess that he had to have been someone extremely powerful, someone extremely passionate about hospitality. This person, the chef, understood what it took to bring races together. There'd be 80 guests, just like at Fuller's dinner. They'd be people of substance, people who've already contributed to Charleston's political, historical, and social climate. Six invitations would be reserved for winners of an essay contest administered by Charleston's daily newspaper, The Post and Courier. What would members of the public say when asked why they belonged at Nat Fuller's table? Coming up, the Nat Fuller Feast of 2015 and how the question of racial reconciliation resonates now some 150 years after the first dinner. That, of course, is the sponsorship music. If you want a window into some of the cultural forces at play in South Carolina history, go to the website for Anson Mills. There you learn the story of the Carolina Rice Kitchen, how a particular cuisine emerged in the early 1800s along the Carolina and Georgia coast. It was an expression of the people who lived there, Venetian farmers designed rice canals, and Africans supplied knowledge of rice management methods. Anson Mills showcases biodiversity, and it is just as deeply committed to the diversity of people who have cultivated low country crops. The good folks at Anson put it this way, the association of these peoples and their cultures resulted in a vibrant melting pot exchange that ultimately became a new cuisine. The staples of that cuisine, the rice and other grains, are what Anson Mills provides now. Carolina gold rice, freshly milled corn, buckwheat, field peas, wheat, rye, and oats. You can learn more at AnsonMills.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Now back to Philip Greitzer and the Nat Fuller Dinner. The dinner Nat Fuller held in 1865 was on the eve of emancipation, a celebratory moment. How would another dinner feel now, 150 years later, with Reconstruction, Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Movement, and the Voting Rights Act between the two meals? That was on my mind as I headed into the Nat Fuller Feast of 2015. On a rainy evening, guests arrive at the same building that once housed Fuller's Bachelor's Retreat. It's a colonial townhouse, now an art gallery, with beamed ceilings and a wood plank floor. The crowd is urban, sophisticated, young, old, well-dressed, and racially mixed. They're Charleston's movers and shakers, and they're chatting loudly. As servers past hors d'oeuvres, local chef B.J. Dennis tells me about them. We have some uh, fresh brioche sliced. We smeared it with some foie gras mousse, a little bit of strawberry jam, and some pickled spring onions. Dennis is a Gullah. They're the low country direct descendants of West African slaves who once worked the coastal plantations. Tonight, he's playing the role of Tom R. Tully, Fuller's protege and soon-to-be Charleston's next great chef. We also have uh, some warm rice bread that's topped with some mustard and some smoked beef tongue, and we topping that with a little uh, classic chow chow. In the courtyard, drinks like brandy smash, mint julep, and shrubs are being made from Fuller's recipes. There's even a brandy made from Bradford watermelons. We're doing um, lobster salad and benesi tarts. The final thing, little mini chicken pies. Dressed in their Union Army blue uniforms, drinks in hand, are four black Civil War reenactors. They're from the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the African-American unit made famous in the movie Glory and in battles with Confederate soldiers in Charleston. It wasn't hard to spot the six winners of the essay contest. They stood at the fringes, looking reflective. Not surprising since in preparing their essays, each had been giving a lot of thought to the meaning of this evening. Sheila Anderson grew up in Charleston's segregated schools and neighborhoods during the Jim Crow era. She could identify with the blacks invited to the first dinner. She said it was validation that they too were human beings worthy of respect, compassion, and equality. That's still something she feels needs confirmation, even today. Now, social segregation may no longer be mandated by law, but black and white folks often still don't know each other. I want to make some new friends. I hope that people carry this idea to their own individual communities, even within this community. I'm sure that there are people in this community that aren't even speaking to each other. With a wry smile, she tells me she wished Ben Tillman could be here. Tillman was a South Carolina politician, a governor and senator, known for his racist views. He died in 1918. Buildings at South Carolina public colleges still bear his name. Maybe if he could see the humanity of black people, maybe it would soften him up a little bit. And then again, maybe not. Maybe not. I I just don't think you could sit together at a meal without something happening. Michael Twitty, an invited guest who's a food historian from Washington, D.C., agrees. Something magical can happen over food. I've often said that we Southerners, uh, black, white, other, 
are a family, albeit a dysfunctional family, but we're still a family. And food is, a very, is an extremely important way for us to not only come together, but to reach mutual understanding. In that Fuller's time, it was an issue of reconciliation after the war. In our own time, it's reconciliation over issues of social, food, and culinary justice. And so I think from that perspective, um, this dinner has an absolutely perfect resonance for today's times. Resonance, and a kind of symmetry too. At this very moment across town, in North Charleston, a group called Black Lives Matter was holding a rally on race and injustice. Two weeks earlier, an unarmed black man, stopped by police for an automobile infraction, tried to run away. A white policeman shot him in the back. A shooting was caught on video. Events like that shooting have tempered Chef Mitchell's expectations for the evening. By no means do I, I think that this, this dinner is going to be the miraculous thing that changes race relations in America, but I hope this can be a beacon to, for people to come together as one. Black, white, purple, brown, we're all coming together for one cause, and that is what I'm hoping. After the cocktail hour, the guests did come together in a kind of parade led by the Civil War reenactors and the culinary students in their white tunics, to McCready's restaurant a few blocks away. McCready's is on a street appropriately called Unity Alley. Two 50-foot-long banquet tables set with linen napkins, china, silver, and champagne glasses nearly fill this grand dining room. Ray Linville, whose essay got him a place at the table, looks around the room, the tables, and the guests. He's a history buff and is trying to imagine that first dinner when people who have never spoken to one another sat together for the first time. This historic war has been brought to a close and you would anticipate the animosity, the friction, and here was this chef, a uh, gifted individual who had a vision of unification. Chef Mitchell gives the blessing. Dear Father, bless the people in this room both guests and servers. Give the diners here health and pleasure from the food we serve. Give them an appreciation of the peace of this time and of this place. Some guests thought they might be eating typically Southern dishes like fried chicken, grits, red rice, and bread pudding. David Shields says that African-American chefs in the 19th century had been classically trained. They knew how to make a charlotte russe. They knew how to make a bone turkey, a galantine. They knew how to make the regional specialties like terrapinella, Maryland. There was a repertoire of caterers, of dishes that you had to know because that's what people who were going to hire caterers were looking for. And so you had a much more cosmopolitan cuisine in the 19th century than we've come to expect now. I'm seated next to Robin Lee Griffith. She's the great, great, great granddaughter of Eliza Seymour Lee, the woman who taught Nat Fuller how to cook. Eliza Lee is a legend in the pantheon of Charleston's African-American cooks. Shields made a point of searching for local descendants of Eliza Lee, and he was eager for Mrs. Griffith to attend the meal. She's treated tonight like a rock star. She was introduced by Chef Mitchell, and throughout the dinner, Mitchell, Chef Dennis, and the African-American student chefs came up to talk with her. 
One student, Devon Code, asks for her autograph. I've been reading and reading and reading for about the last six months and uh, just finding out about Eliza Seymour Lee and um, just knowing that we actually have someone of uh, her descendant here in the room tonight, you know, it's just like an amazing thing. Waiters, carrying silver platters, begin serving the soup course. We start off with two soups, <clears throat> a turtle soup. Um, the other soup is a oyster soup um, that we will garnish with some mint celery. As a waiter stands behind me, she carefully places a portion on my plate. Another waiter steps forward and pours the sauce on my fish. Three kinds of fish, three kinds of sauce. We uh, poach bass, shrimp pie, and fried whiting. And that will come with the mushroom ketchup, walnut ketchup, a caper butter sauce. Next comes the poultry platter, classically French. Duck a l'orange, capon, and squab with truffle sauce. Joanne Coxum is in historical heaven. Her great-great-grandmother sold flowers and sweetgrass baskets in downtown Charleston. And she's certain that her relative knew Fuller. Between bites of squab, Coxum tells me about her expectations. Well, because of some of the things that are going on in Charleston right now, I do hope that this will bring light to many ideas and many expressions from people and say, yes, we can get along and try to get a lot of the problems that we have in the Charleston area remedied. There's a meat course, venison with currants, lamb with mint sauce, and a deconstructed beef stew. For dessert, Charlotte Russe, rum cakes, and punch cakes, as well as ice cream. Nat Fuller had an affinity for ice cream, so we're going to serve vanilla ice cream. And something really interesting, we're going to serve pineapple ice cream. As the last course was cleared, David Shields stood, raised his champagne glass, and explained that at every banquet, toasts were a tradition. Anyone could give a toast, and although toasts from that night have been lost to history, Shields mused that those toasts must have been groundbreaking. This must have been the first space an occasion in Charleston where people of so broad a range of ethnic background and uh, history had the opportunity to speak their mind in so candid a way to one another. Only one of the toasts from that original feast has come down to us. And I'd like to repeat it now. I think it's interesting to think that the assassination of President Lincoln had taken place by the time that this toast was given. To Lincoln and Liberty. Around the room, toasts were made. Chefs thanked the staff. Mitchell's mother toasted how proud she was of her son. Sheila Anderson read a poem she'd written for tonight's dinner. Damon Fordham, an author and historian, addressed the elephant in the room, the need and urgency to do something in light of the North Charleston shooting. And so I'd like to toast to us coming together at a time of reconciliation that was needed 150 years ago and is still here today. Other communities in South Carolina are holding their own fuller feasts. There was one in Columbia and another in Clinton. Shields heard that the Clinton dinner really generated some dialogue. They were very anxious that that town did not turn into a Ferguson. And you can only avoid those sorts of tensions if you have a healthy conversation, a healthy collaboration between all the political actors in the city. It's difficult to talk about racial issues face to face. 
and it's harder still to do something about them. Tonight, each guest that I spoke with stressed the importance of starting a conversation, talking, getting to know one another, but no one had ideas how to take the conversation to the next level. Shields thinks just starting the conversation is what's important. I'd like the same sorts of things to be performed that were performed 150 years ago. The people who are gathering at this table, many of them don't know one another. They come from the black elite and the Anglo-Saxon Caucasian elite. Some, some of the people are known to one another, others are not. Let that conversation exist. Their strange faces around that table make a friend. By recreating a meal held 150 years ago, Shields and his collaborators have unearthed the story of a man, a former slave, who had remarkable skills as a chef, entrepreneur, and social activist. And in doing so, they've proven the adage that food can bring people together, not just for sustenance or entertainment, but to leverage possibilities for the future. The Nat Fuller Feast of 2015 happened just a couple of months before the night of June 17th. Most of us know what happened that night by now. That's when a white man entered Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston during a Wednesday evening prayer meeting. After sitting quietly for an hour, he opened fire, killing nine parishioners. The pastor of the church, Reverend Clemente Pinckney, was one of those slain. He attended the Nat Fuller Feast in Charleston just weeks before. David Shields told me that he spoke with Reverend Pinckney at the dinner that night, and that the pastor had called for face-to-face interaction among people of different backgrounds as a pathway to reconciliation. In the face of this act of domestic terror, David Shields told me, one that was intended to spark racial strife, we must work even harder to come together, as Pinckney and Nat Fuller advocated, to learn one another's life situations, Shields said, and to share something beneficial, like a meal, which both nourishes us and gives us pleasure, as individuals, as a region, and as a country. Philip Greitzer is a radio producer based in South Georgia. Music for this episode was from Diagram Collective, David Shulman and Quiet Life Motel, Corey Gray, and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Coming up, a little taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... I'm John T. Edge, and I direct the Southern Foodways Alliance at the University of Mississippi. From its inception in 1999, the SFA's vision has been to set a common table where black and white and rich and poor, all who gather, may consider our history and our future in the spirit of reconciliation. Nat Fuller of Charleston, South Carolina, worked toward that goal in the 1860s. Beginning in the 1960s, during the Civil Rights Movement, groups across the South took up that same cause. Those efforts continued through the 1980s. The Friendly Supper Club was organized in Montgomery, Alabama. The effort was born of a violent March 1983 confrontation between a family of black mourners and a pair of overzealous white police officers. The idea was simple and elegant. An interracial dinner, half black, half white, staged monthly. Think of it as a pyramid scheme for brotherhood, Jack Smith, the organizer, wrote in an open letter. 
Despite a bomb threat that interrupted an early meeting, black and white Montgomery citizens began gathering monthly. They dined on corn sticks and collard greens, on macaroni and cheese and meatloaf. They dined on hope and the promise of reconciliation. Now, inspired by the Nat Fuller dinner and challenged by the recent act of domestic terrorism in Charleston, a new generation of Southerners is staging racial reconciliation dinners. Follow the effort at southernfoodways.org. Join us at the table. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, one fisherman's story of the series of losses Louisiana's coast has faced. Our lives will never be the same. We will never be the same. That was your way of life. That was your life. So how can your life ever be the same? It won't. It can't be. That is next time. You are listening to Gravy from the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>